Dance Hall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. Go. And welcome to another deep digging, secret uncovering episode of The Outer Edge. I'm William Michael Mott, here with Tim Schwartz, and uh, it is November 2nd where I am, and November 3rd? It, it's November 3rd here. Where Tim is, in, there you go. In, in, in the eastern time zone. So. But uh, I'm catching up with you, man. I'm almost okay. there. That's right. But anyway, uh, so yeah, we have an interesting episode tonight. It'll be a lot of fun. It's uh, cold where I am, chilly anyway. Um, how about you, Tim? Everything copacetic up there? Oh yeah, well we actually we actually had uh, um, uh, like uh, sleet and Ooh. snow flurries here on Friday. Just Blah. a little bit, just a little bit north uh, uh, from where I live, they actually had a dusting of snow on the ground. So. And you know, that that seems to be the way it always is around here. You know, you you yeah. have Halloween, you have Halloween, and uh, here too November first. Then it's yep. just like you know, screw this, it's winter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you know, I I told uh, I, I went somewhere with with my my lady friend, my girlfriend, and uh, her brother this week. Actually, a couple times we went did some things, and uh, and I told him I said, you know, when it's uh, when it's October thirty first. In Mississippi, all of a sudden, boom, it will turn cold. And sure enough, on the 31st, that morning, <laughs> the temperature started dropping, you know, overnight and, and leading up to that. And, and so this morning when I went outside, there was frost, frost, you know, on the ground and the plants right. and stuff. So, but it didn't last long. I mean, it was, you know, it was gone in a few hours, a couple hours. And, you know, midday, it was, it was actually comfortable to walk around. Except when the wind would blow, and if you're in the sh- in the shade or mm-hmm. something. But uh, yeah, I went for a walk in the woods. I took my little dog for a walk. Um, he doesn't go out into the wilderness much, but uh, I have big <laughs> dogs, and then I had the little dogs. So I said, "Hey, man, we're going to go for a walk." So we went off to the woods, gallivanting about, and uh, uh, so 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 no more uh, uh, no more uh, UFO sightings or, or, or no, things man. going on since I talked to you last time. No, man, what, what, there, the, but there are critters in the woods. There are always critters, you know. Well, yeah, so, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so that's always fun. In fact, we, we, uh, I took him with me, you know, and of course I, I had an, uh, a new toy with me just in case I did run into anything I needed to deal with. And, uh, <laughs> so we, we went down this 
I mean, it's, it's, it really is like wilderness back there. So we went, we went around this area and down around this turn. And, you know, later when I, we were in the woods, I don't, okay, I, when I was young, I spent a lot of time in the woods. And, you know, you could tell when yeah, it was too quiet, okay? Mm-hmm. When it's really, really quiet, you know, something's going on. <laughs> there are predators around or something. I mean, it's it was quiet. dead silent except for the, except for the wind. And I saw a couple of squirrels, you know, but they, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't hunting or anything, but they were real uh, furtive and everything. Hmm. And I just, you know, I, instincts told me that I was being, that we were being watched or something. And I got back up to where we had turned and come down and it was a huge, fresh, steaming pile of something special there. Hmm. Um, obviously left by coyotes, right? Coyote. Oh, right. Um, because it, it, uh, okay, if you're in the woods enough, you'll know, you know, the difference between a domesticated dog and a coyote, for instance. Oh, sure. Or a cat, oh. or a big cat, or whatever. And so this, this was, uh, um, definitely coyote. If it's not going to be full of fur, sometimes it's so full of fur, it looks like felt. Okay. Mm-hmm. But this was just like jet black. It's like tar. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was just so, I mean, it was like right there, almost like steam coming off of it. So that told me who and what was in the woods, you know, around us, um, where it, it actually had been on our trail because it had to know we came through there. Oh, sure, and, sure. And had just done that, like saying, this is my territory. I'm leaving this just for you. <laughs> so my little dog smelled of that, and it freaked him out, you know. Oh, so, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, do- he's a like, dog. That, that? I start saying a dog, you know, that size. I mean, that's, oh, just, yeah. an or- that's just an hors d'oeuvre for a coyote. Sure, coyotes love to or, get little dogs like that. And, or as some people around here call them, coats. 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 Coats, yeah. Cutes, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you, but, you know, uh, yeah, it, you know, you gotta wonder what it goes through, like a, a dog that stays in the house most of the time. He goes out into the big yard and mm-hmm. does his thing, comes back in. What's he thinking? You know, he's, he gets a whiff of something like this, like, what in the hell has this guy been eating? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I smell absolutely no great products whatsoever. Uh, well, now, I mean, you know, around, uh, around here, I mean, you know, we've, you know, we have a lot of coyotes, but I mean, they don't, they don't bother you. I mean, even, I mean, you know, sure, I mean, they'll go after your pets and stuff, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I hear, I hear people say, oh, you know, coyotes, you know, they're dangerous. And they they actually can't be, yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, there, Especially there with, aren't that many. Well, when they pack up sometimes, well, but they, I mean. When they're in a pack is when they, they yeah. worry about them. And when but they, they're, they're. They're almost always in a pack around here, boy. I mean, you hear them at night. You hear them howling, and you know you don't just hear one howling. You hear about a couple of dozen sounds like. Right. You know. Well, <laughs> here they have a problem not just with coyotes, but with something something called coy dogs. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when they mix with dogs, you end up with a bigger, more aggressive coyote type animal. Well, that, sure, they well, don't they don't have that fear. They don't have the people. fear. And, um, of course, my dad's passed away now, but years ago when he was on his tractor um, doing some bush hogging, he was attacked by a pack of coyotes or koi dogs. And, and he, you know, they were trying to, like, jump up and drag. And he was a big guy. And they were trying to jump wow. up and drag him down off the tractor. And, of course, he had his rifle with him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, said, yeah, but he said after even after he had shot a number of them that they they were reluctant to leave. So, wow. Maybe, 
maybe he was like right on top of their den or something and didn't know it. You know, I mean, well, no, I, you know, I, I bet you're right though. I bet they, they probably, you know, were a, uh, um, you know, inter, interbred with, uh, with dogs. Yeah, or, you know, can, hybridized with dogs because they lose their fear. Because, I mean, I've, uh, you know, I've been out in the woods before and have run across, you know, single coyotes and then groups of them. And, you know, as soon as they get a sight of me or a whiff of me, boy, I mean, they just, and maybe it's just me, yeah. they, they just they yeah. just run like hell, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that, I think what had, them, what had them interested today was that little, was the little dog I had with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, they smell that. It's like you said, it's like, uh. Hey man, somebody somebody brought lunch. So, you know, uh, I know that the dogs that we have outside—they're big dogs, and I, they fight with coyotes. You can hear them sometimes tie up, you know, at night and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things. That I figure next time I go back there, I probably won't take him with me. I'll probably just—I'll take one of the bigger dogs and go back there. Um, but anyway, I wanted to ask you about something. Did you see the story this week about the supposed deathbed disclosure of the ex-Area 51 scientist or whatever he was, engineer who worked for Lockheed Martin, I think it was. Was that who it was? Yeah, you know, I've... Uh, um I've seen the stories about it, but I, I haven't actually seen the video yet. Right. Well, here's um, the deal. I watched the video. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, you've seen the video. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Yeah. And th- this guy, okay, everything you could think of from the old, you know, for years now, the, the, the Area 51 lore, the extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, talking points, the... You know, and, and how the telepathy works. And, you know, it's interesting because what he says is that they talk to you in your own voice in your head. Well, that's what they right. used to say about the devil, too. You know, and the people sure. still say that. Um, but anyway, he, he has this whole big story he tells. And I cannot, honestly, I cannot remember the name. He says the, what their planet, you know, he says the name of their planet. What Their planet is called, and it's something so ludicrous, you know, it sounds like some oh, uh, like badly made-up name. Well, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but isn't like uh, Quint uh, Quintumina or something Quintoni- like that? Quintonia. Quintonia. Yeah. yeah something I, just stupid. Okay. Why would they? Why would they have a name that sounds like it's Latin? You know. I mean. <laughs> but but then you know they show that he shows the photos, and I have seen so many figurines, dolls, mannequins of aliens. You know, pictures of them, and this thing is obviously. A mannequin or a toy, you know. So I instantly go to eBay and I find one that looks exactly like it. And then I go on Google Images and I and I search and I find oh, about twelve that look exactly like it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. all they did was they got one of these toys and then they took like some some acrylic paint or some airbrush airbrush or something, and they added some wrinkles and a little you know a little darkening under the eyes. Like maybe the alien's been up too late and it hasn't had much sleep. You know, right. That kind of, it was really pathetic. And well, and if and if anyone in our audience, you know, wants to look this up, the guy's name is Boyd Bushman. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is just like uh, put area, let's Google like aerial, Area 51 employee says UFOs are real, and that's the first thing that pops up right now. And you know, and and I think. I think that I have seen this guy before on shows like maybe UFO Hunters or something like that. Yeah. Talk about talk about this story. It seems before. like I have seen it before, but I guess this yeah. this this bombshell 
Yeah. Well, hell, well, I mean, yeah, we've had. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was hell for him for after he had passed away, where it was one of those things where, where he might have said, don't release this until I'm gone. This is well, you know, it, off, you know, it makes me wonder, though, whether or not, because, I mean, this guy has um, some pretty impressive uh, um, um, credentials. I mean, you know, this isn't just some guy who's just, uh, you know, yeah. like uh, dropped out of nowhere. I mean, you know, he worked with uh, Lockheed Martin, Stung, right. uh, Skunk Works, Texas Instruments, and Hughes Aircraft. Well, you know he, has a number, he has a number of patents as well. Yeah, he, he does. Yeah. And I was looking at all that. But what gets me is, first of all, the the ridiculous, really bad uh, made-up name for their planet. I'm sorry, that's just too... <laughs> Well, it's, it sounds like something from one of these, like, you know, uh, 1950s science fiction Exactly. Movies, it's like Book Rogers or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but on top of that, the obviously fake aliens mm. or alien photos, and they only show it in pieces. Like he's got it covered up with what looks like uh, a white blanket or, or maybe a, a cotton or something. And it's like a foot sticking out, and it's the bottom of a foot. And it's obviously a plastic foot from a toy. I'm sorry, but it's obvious. And they show this is the back of the head, this is the foot, this is the head, and then you find the identical pieces on the toys that you can find. You know, just doing a Google image search. So here's the question: He, okay, he's claiming that someone gave him all these these photos that they supplied him with this this uh, this top secret sensitive information. Mm -hmm. And so let's say, okay, the figure is fake. The planet is ridiculously fake. It's the name that he was given for the planet. But what if that's just to create an element of doubt? And some of what he says is true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. But at the same time, though, his photos. Okay, he's got these photos on post. On a, Okay, it looks like a really bad. Okay, as, as, a, as someone who's been a teacher, if I had a kid that did a project on a uh, folding piece of poster board mm-hmm. and took pictures and just stuck them up there with, with masking tape, not masking tape, uh, scotch tape like he did. Badly printed out drawings or weird, you know, very, very indistinct photos. I mean, it proved nothing. I would have given him an, like a, like a C minus at the most. A D maybe. <laughs> I mean, it was not, it, you know, it's just like he had all this crap plastered on this, this folding Board says, see, this is, and he's like, okay, what am I looking at? What are you showing me? What is this? You know, I mean, right. it was just. Well, it, it makes me wonder whether sad. or not, I mean, he, he, he did have, you know, like, uh, actual experiences and interactions when he worked at these places, but naturally, I mean, you know, he's not going to be allowed to walk out of these. You know, uh, uh, top secret, you know, uh, uh, high security places with the, you know, with these pictures or these kinds of information. And I just wonder if after he retired, like you said, you know, somebody passed this, you know, well, information along yeah. to him. Yeah. Or whether or not he just started collecting it on his own, um, you know, just because of his, you know, his, his interest in what uh, he, his experiences were. And, I, and, you know, it's, we've seen this before though. Where we have, you know, where you've had employees of these facilities who who come out and say that they have had these experiences, and then they have they are being fed then additional information afterwards, which makes me wonder if 
the like the name of the planet that you referred to whether or not they are be are are given this information to um well uh, to have them described as a kook you know so that then anything else that they would say that may have really have happened to them you know with with their top secret black budget experiences would then just be considered just as kooky as you know the uh, the pictures of the uh, the dead aliens and the and the ufos right you well know, you, you know here's you the thing. Mud, you you muddy the waters yeah and I, I, you that know, could at, be what's going on yeah. here and then and, you can't believe anything that he says well you know me i mean my, my take is that when you start saying they come from this star and that star, okay, yeah, okay, we'll prove that. Um, you know, you it's, no, <laughs> no, you can't prove it. And, and, and so it's, you know, it's, it's more of this, look up there, don't look down here. You know, look out there, don't look under your oceans and your, the crust of your own planet and, and, and at these ancient things that have always been around, they've always been doing this stuff. Oh, look, we just, they just started coming here, you know, whatever. You know, I, it just seems like it's the same old song and dance. And if there's disinformation out there, it seems to me like the disinformation on the part of governments also has to do with trying to convince us that there are extraterrestrials that are coming here from far away. When they may very well know that whatever's going on really is, is has its origin much closer to home and they don't want us to know that. Mm-hmm. I actually think people would panic more if they knew if they knew or thought that than if they thought aliens were coming here. Oh sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, the whole the whole idea of um and I'll just use the word aliens because you know, okay, I I I use like uh, Tim Beckley's word ultra or Jim, uh, John Keel's word ultra terrestrials. Right. You know, that con- that concept with the exception of, you know, those of us, you know, who uh, uh who who research this type of things, for the general public, the whole concept that these things are a lot closer is just, uh, I mean, that's... It's that's too frightening. Even, well, well, it's not even a consideration. I mean, if you yeah. go up to most people on the street and say, you know, consider that uh, uh, flying saucers are real and the creatures coming out of them are real, where do they come from? I, you know, 99.9% of people would say, oh, well, you know, they come from Mars or from space or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and of if, course. And, and but if they've, you, been, and if you know, s- they've been conditioned to think that way. For, that's right. Uh, ever since H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. That's right. That's, that's right. a long and, time. <laughs> and, if, and if you would, and if you would say, "Oh well, it's been longer than that," gosh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yep. uh, but you know, if you say, "Well, you know, what if I were to tell you that they actually came from, say, like you know, uh, uh, underground caverns right under our feet?" You know, then then look at you like you had just you know dropped oh, off yeah. the butt, yeah, you know, exactly. dropped they, off they the wagon or something. Coming. Yeah, they can believe they're coming from hundreds of thousands of light years away, but mm-hmm. they don't want to believe that something that fits the earthly vertebrate template quite well could come from some unknown region of our own planet they, they you know it's the it's totally illogical um but you know it kind of ties in with what we talked about on on ancient aliens this past week you and i because we both were on there <laughs> and uh you know it was it was mysterious caves and of course they didn't put anywhere near you know the, the amount of time you and i did with them which i'm sure they'll spread out over many shows and they already have with you but uh you know, yeah, I, I, I seem to remember that my comments about Richard Shaver um, were just uh, very were, were fairly fairly brief, right. and it was it was in reference to a completely different subject. And you know, and when I mentioned Shaver, I mean the uh, the producer at the time, you know, didn't really have any idea who Shaver was. So right, right. 
and they did. They used a very brief statement from you about Richard Shaver, mm-hmm. and you know, I gave them a lot, a lot of info on Shaver, and they didn't, they didn't use it yet. I'm not saying that they won't, but, uh, but you know, the thing is that when you start talking about things being in and of this Earth, this planet, including you know anomalous beings and entities and all this stuff, that seems to make the skeptics even more angry than the idea of extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because they're so open-minded and so scientific in the way they think. <laughs> Not. But, but anyway, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because, it's, you know, that kind of stuff already gets started where I've already seen where, you know, uh, bloggers are having their little criticisms of the episode. And, boy, they just get beside themselves. They, they just want so badly to get attention. It's kind of funny. It's kind of mm. kind of sad, but kind of funny. But you know, the thing is that obviously there's something going on. Always has been, and that's why tonight's guest is is uh, really. I'm really happy to have him on here. You know, I've, I've probably uh, interacted with him for I don't know, maybe 14, 15 years. You know, online and stuff, and and we've helped each other out with different projects and things. And and uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to Richard Shaver, this guy really knows what it's all about. And he uh, he was a correspondent of Shavers. So yeah, it's going to be yeah, a good. Show. Yeah, yeah, it, it will be. Well, and we've had uh, we had Richard Toronto on our uh, um, earlier incarnation show. Yes, uh, <laughs> unraveling the secrets. Yes, we and did. So I'm really, I'm really happy that we we're able to, uh, um, to get him back on. Yeah, he, yeah. he did. He didn't realize we had changed shows. So <laughs> he was surprised. <laughs> but anyway, if anybody out there tonight wants to call in, join the conversation, ask a question, uh, give us a call at seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. That's seven eight six two four five eight one two seven. You can go to Facebook, see our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash The Outer Edge Radio. Or go to PSN-Radio.com and chat live in our chat room during the show. But anyway, it's 786-245-8127. But uh, if, if you would, wait until the last 30 minutes or so to call in so we can talk to our guest. Yes, that would be great. Oh, and uh, uh, for those of you um, who, who may be familiar with the old... Uh, um, Zine or Zine, I think that's how they are pronounced. Uh, yeah. uh, Tor- uh, Toronto was also, I mean, he was the original uh, founder of Shavertron. Yes. Um, the, the, the fan sign. And, uh, there's also, I mean, it's, uh, it, it still exists like in, um, oh gosh, what's it like, a uh, Yahoo group forms. Sure. And he's yeah. also got a website, uh, Shavertron.com. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I mean, you know, it's, it amazes me that there's still, there are still Yahoo groups. <laughs> yeah, but they're still going strong. Some people just prefer that uh, that text uh, format, I guess, to keep things going in text threads. But uh, you know, oh well. But then again, then, then again, I mean, you know, I've uh, I've got friends who are of the younger generations, and they're amazed at email and email communication still exists. Right. So you know, <laughs> well, you know, it's like I was telling you though. I mean, there could be benefits to it. I look, I go on Facebook, we talked about this before the show, and there are people on there, left and right, with made up names, you know. Oh, sure. Bigfoot Sniffer, and, uh, you know, <laughs> Holy Roller, 
Uh, you know, whatever. I mean, they make up these names. They put them on Facebook. Facebook's okay. That's cool. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, about a, I guess about, gosh, five, maybe five weeks ago, six weeks ago, I logged onto a site to make a comment. I just logged in on my Facebook identity, and this site wanted information. So I said, okay, ask for my name. I said William Mott. Of course, I go by Mike right. to my friends. You know, William Michael Mott. And as a writer, I'm WM period Michael Mott. Because there are so many Michael Motts, so many William Motts out there that I want to, you know, that makes my thing distinct. And so that people won't get me mixed up with other people, including other writers. And I go back to Facebook, and Facebook refuses to let me log in. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, what the hell? And it says, oh my gosh. you are not using your real name. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it puts me through this hell. I'm trying to get around doing this. It says you have to change your name, or you will not be locked. You'll be locked out of your account forever, and we will steal your soul. You know. So I was like, okay. Huh. So I go through all this crap. I finally change my name. I change it to William, and it accepts that. You know? All right. Then huh. I like. It says you cannot change your name again for sixty days. Okay, cool. I go back in today. You could never change your name again. You have sinned against the Facebook gods. You have changed your name too many times. I say actually what it said. So I've changed my name too many times. I actually only changed it once when Facebook forced me to do so. Right. And that's actually like I'm some kind of cyber criminal. I never used my real name before, which of course I did. I just used the abbreviated form of William. So, you know, when you have to deal with that kind of stupidity, aggravation, and sort of cyber totalitarianism, mm-hmm. you can see why people say, the hell with this, and they go back to Yahoo groups. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's just, I mean, that's that's just bizarre. Yeah, it's I, stupid. Yeah, it, yeah it, it, it really is. I mean, you know, uh, well, you know, what is it? Uh, YouTube's, you know, it used to be that uh, um, you could, you know, like be a subscriber to YouTube's. Uh, under, you know, like one of these names, you know, like you said, like, you know, Unicorn, <laughs> Unicorn Lover 5-6 or something like that. Right, and, right. and and now they want you to, you know, have your real name. Yeah. So that, you know, so that when you make disparaging comments about uh, other YouTube videos, they know who you are. <laughs> well, that's true. I think, that, I think that's why they do that. Well, well here's, here's another thing, too, though. You know, when it comes to Facebook, I have stopped accepting friend requests and such from anybody that's not using their real name. Oh, sure. The, the reason I have reasons for that, you know, and I've had some, uh, some people get on there and pretend to be people they weren't and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So if somebody sends me a, a friend request and they got some silly made up name, they can forget it. It's not going to happen. You know, unless I know them, unless it's like, Hey man, this is really me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> but if it's not that, then no, it's not going to happen. So, well, why don't we uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, go to our uh, half hour break here, and when we come back, we will have our guest Richard Toronto, where and we'll be talking about Richard Chaver and other underground mysteries. So, Sounds good. Let's go ahead and do that. You're listening to the Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mott. We will be right back with our guest Richard Toronto. So please stay tuned. <laughs> 
It is about the implementation of the mark of the beast. I spoke to you about that, I think, two weeks ago. We addressed Revelation chapter 13, verses 16, 17, and 18. And he calls it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands, or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, say he had the mark or the name, or the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him that have understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six hundred three score and six. They said Halloween 2012, just about three steps from hell, three slices, cross the juggler's vein. Before it fell, pull back the veil, that's where it gets thin. Feel that knife along the side of his ribs, then crawl inside his skin. Wearing an asshole, non-believer like a bathrobe. Splash phone with acid, scar face, reverse of speech. In this verse, if you want to hear Satan, when we speaking back, we're sharpening up the swords and battle axes. Barking up the skies on the doom planet as it spins off its axis, let the trumpets go on and blow. As the earthquakes and the dirt shakes down below. The ground splits and starts steaming UFOs coming through them stargates And earth gets flooded by abominations Revelations try to tell the people better with a God's patience Prophesied vision what they were seeing You gonna live on your knees or die on your feet For what you believe in huh? Proverbs 27, 12 says A wise man foresees trouble coming And takes refuge But the simple pass on And are punished They're not punished in a punitive way I'm thinking that I can be waking up early today. I'm thinking the early birds, the first to get up and they get a taste. I'm thinking it's strange, a little bit different now the time and it's changed. Cause nowadays it's sending the word to deliver a bird to my place. The first name is what I've been stuck with since an earlier age. Never did give me a nickname, but get it, I'm flipping the page. Just give it a minute and I'ma be living up in a particular place. But the living is similar to the religion that tell me I gotta quit living to get in the gates. Man, I could be tripping, but lately living with demons. Sleep 33, sun is sleeping. I'm wide awake, out here breathing. I'm shaking like it was freezing. Banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Talk Stream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374 That's 954-973-3374 Or visit keyinformation.com Remember, Future Theater could be heard every Monday night at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern, with your host, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hi, Caramba. Burns, and we are broadcasting live right here on PSN Radio. Breaking the walls down. This is radio. This is what people want. To download the podcast, make sure you go to www.futuretheater.com.
Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing! Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Mike Mott here with Tim Schwartz, and we are now joined by our very special guest, Richard Toronto. Richard, how are you, man? I am doing well, Mike. It's good to be back on your show, even though it's not the same show I was on last time. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a new name now. Yeah, yeah, the old show still exists. The old show's still out there. I don't keep up with it. but uh, it, it, yeah. it was a it was a bloody coup. I mean, we we were we we were we were we were cast out and uh, you know barely made it from you know. <laughs> hey, it was cool. It was cool. That's it, right. you know, yeah, yeah. The the guy who owns the network came to us and said, "Hey, you know the original show owner and, and Richard, you probably know him, Dennis Crenshaw." Oh yeah, yeah. He started uh, unraveling the secrets. He, him and uh, Rick Osmond, and he came and he said, well, he said, Dennis wants his show back. You know, he wants to give it another shot. And so we've been on, I guess I've been on there for about three years, and uh, Tim had been on there for at least a year and a half, if not longer. Yeah, about, and, yeah, it was a little more than a year. Yeah, and and, and so we said, okay, that's cool. No, so, I said, hell no. <laughs> Let him get his but, own damn show. <laughs> He said, "I'm going to give you guys." He said, "I'm going to give you guys a show, just whatever." I mean, I got another time slot. It's Sunday night. <laughs> who's up at some? Who's up on Sunday night? Except all these, all you people out there. What the hell are you still doing up? <laughs> uh, I don't, angry loners, people who are living in their parents' basements. There you know, go. Pe- People like yeah. that. <laughs> People here at Tron headquarters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so he gave us a slot. And I, so we, we had plenty of time. We had like a month. So we put together, you know, concept and and graphics and uh, intros and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I actually like it. I think I, I think this is more. T- 
him and my own thing. You know what I mean? Well, Other I like people started too. The outer edge. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. It's been a lot of fun. It's gone really fast this year. It's really seemed to fly by, man. It has. And we've almost, you know, we did unraveling. There were times when, you know, guests would cancel the last minute. We'd run a rerun. We'd take a break and run a rerun. But we really haven't taken that many breaks this year, have we, Tim? No, we haven't. And, and, and I don't, and I don't know why. I think we need, I need, we, we need to take some more. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've, I've got some, are, I've, you guys are branching out into these TV appearances now. Oh, yeah. Tim's been doing it longer than I have. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm new. I'm new to that. Well, I don't want to buy a new wardrobe, so I'm not doing any. I just wore a blazer, man. <laughs> a blazer and a tie. Well, you look good. I mean, I I watched that uh, mysterious caves episode on on the internet. You know, okay, you looking good. Cool. Appreciate it. Looking old, but that's okay. Uh, you look good. Uh, not too old, no. Okay, cool. <laughs> but, but, but you know, um, that's like I was telling Tim. I've already seen where some bloggers are already, you know, spewing and gnashing their teeth because they're sort of like the pseudo skeptics. I call them pseudo skeptics because, you know, uh, classical skeptics would say, "Show me everything, and I'll make up my mind." Uh, Modern day skeptics are actually just debunkers who want to sound clever and prove it to everybody how smart they are. And they, so they got on there and they tore the episode apart and then the commentators had some smart aleck stuff to say. And But, you know, they really seem to take exception to the fact that the last 10 minutes was about Richard Shaver. Oh, man, they, that to them, that was like the kiss of death. It was like, Richard Shaver, you know, even after all these years, that that visceral hatred from the skeptic community about Shaver is still out there. You know, uh, it, it hasn't changed from day one, really. Um, when Ray Palmer, you know, I've been thinking about this whole thing because uh, I was reading over some back issues of Shavertron, and I, I had some big names in there. Like I was reading over the interview I did with John Keel, and it was around the time that he wrote that essay, "The Man Who Invented Flying Saucers," and that caused a big flap, you know. And he said that yeah. uh, Shaver and Palmer basically fabricated the uh, whole flying saucer mythos, hmm. and that got me thinking about the Shaver mystery mythos that Ray Palmer pretty much worked on, and was accepted up to now, and Shaver himself actually tried to debunk it later in life, but it was so strong what the original mythos was that Mm -hmm. it stuck with us, and Shaver never could really change it. And and the same thing with the, you know, science fiction fans, uh, what they stirred up and created and got him booted out of amazing stories and all that. Right. That stuck with us, too. And and I've been in touch. When I wrote uh, War Over Lemuria, I had to get in touch with some of the really older fans, like uh, Earl Kemp, who, who won a Hugo Award for Who Killed Science Fiction back in 64. And... He could not say enough bad things about Shaver the whole time that I was interviewing, and he helped me a lot. But he just could not say one good word about Shaver ever, even though he had to hang out with Shaver 
for a time down in Houston during the trial in 66. Mm. And uh, even when I told him I was working on a book about Shaver's art, he <laughs> had to badmouth his artwork, too, uh, even though I doubt he really knew much about it. Right. But, but it all has stuck uh, all these years, and, and it's pretty amazing. Well, why why is that? I mean, why you know the such such hatred and 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 anger? I mean, oh my gosh! I mean, I can think of a lot of other people, you know, who have uh, 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 you know who would be more deserving to 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 that kind of uh, um, hatred. <laughs> why Shaver? Shaver did get his share of hatred. Um, you know, James Mosley, he got a lot of criticism too over the years and a lot of people in ufo field did even keel was criticized a lot i don't know i think that these fields is just open to people who like to take pot shots uh, because it's fringe stuff it's unusual it's cutting edge sometimes right Mm -hmm. well you know for for me i look at it from a sort of a folklorist point of view I, i see what shaver was doing as having parallels in all sorts of um, mythological cycles, folk beliefs, legends, and such, even, even archetypes, you know, uh, Jungian arch- archetypes and, and things of this nature. And when you start looking at some of the things that he said, the parallels that are that now exist in the so-called abduction phenomena or phenomenon, and other aspects of Uf- ufology and the UFO mystery, there are very distinct parallels there and you know there are patterns that correspond and what amazes me is that people don't want to look at that they want to just say oh well this guy was schizophrenic forget him you know he was just crazy well you know i mean how many people throughout history have had an altered view of reality that ended up being if not true at least inspired by something other than what everybody else believed Yes, it's true. They tapped into some pretty heavy stuff back then that, that did tie into tie into mythology and archetypes and things like that. Um, like I tried to show in in the first volume of the art book was that Shaver was closer to what you might consider a shaman. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, in a lot of ways. He really uh, was, especially when it came to the rock books. Uh, he tapped into some, and he he really did predate the computer age. He was saying he was describing things how how the ancients put all this information, all this data into stone, and basically that's what started happening in the right. Valley out here. Yeah, he he was basically talking about a, a form of crystal holography. I mean, basically saying that if you had the technology, if you had the playback machines, that you could. You would be able to put these rocks into this into a device and and sort of create an immersive three D reality, a record, you know, like, like a playback. And what he was talking about was so far beyond uh, everybody at the time. They just they just thought it was crackpot stuff. And now what are we doing? We're trying to we're trying to create a holodeck, you know, um, which is he basically what Shaver was talking about. He he also described what I could only assume now was something like the um, World Wide Web back in the early 70s. Um, he, he did describe the World Wide Web, but he, it was 
some form of communication. He was trying to describe it in his own words in, you know, the early 70s. Right. Uh, but it was that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he did a lot of stuff like that. And, and you know, that they just don't want to give him credit for anything. And in terms, in terms of his art, okay, on the Ancient Aliens episode, they actually showed paintings and, and, and slide images or something, which I'm assuming Brian Tucker provided to them because he was he was in the, the last 10 minutes, as you saw. And, you know, they didn't really show, though, the actual rock slices. You know, like like in, in my book, This Tragic Earth, I've got where I actually had photo exposures that were made through slices of rock that he had sent to Ray Palmer. And I scanned those things in at, I think, 800... Eight or nine hundred DPI. I think it was nine hundred DPI. Oh wow! Very high, uh, yeah, very high. As high as I could get it to, not you know, still look, you know, as as, as high as I could get it at the time. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of really weird stuff in those raw data images, stuff that looks like photographs. And you know, I of course I know what pareidolia is, but when you find say three or four images and you think, okay, that's a coincidence. But when you start finding dozens and dozens of what look like photographs of something, at what point do you say, you know, this 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 has exceeded the numerical possibility of coincidence? And of course right. what, what your what your books look at is you, you mainly look at really the artwork he created based on what he thought he saw in the rocks. And you want to describe to the listeners if, uh, what his process was for that? You mean how he made the paintings from the rock? Right, right. Yeah, okay. He would, um, he would, he got a rock saw eventually, and he began cutting the rocks open. He started out on the surface of the rocks before he had all the equipment. Mm-hmm. Right. He, all he studied was the surface, but then it started to draw him into the rock, so he had to see what was in the rock. So he got himself a diamond blade saw, started cutting them open. Then he taught himself photography, and he, uh, I, you know, it's kind of iffy about whether he started drawing at first or photographing at first. At first I thought it was photography, but then it sounded more like it was painting and sketching first, and then right. he taught himself photography. But he would photograph the slice. He had an opaque projector, you know, the kind that you could set on something and then it shines it onto a screen. And he would, uh, and sometimes these surfaces were quite large. He would, would use the whole room as, as kind of a dark room, uh, where he would project it across the room like in a theater. And he would treat the surface trying to replicate what in those days was photographic paper, which we hardly mm-hmm. use anymore now. And he concocted this weird uh, rough material out of kitchen uh, detergents and uh, wax and... Uh, mm-hmm varnishes and things like that and it, it seemed to vary but uh, and there was talk of Drano even <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
he said that the light he projected actually did have pressure and it was similar to the projection of uh, a photo negative onto a piece of photo paper. And so he would project that onto the surface, then he would seal that image that he got by spraying it with just the right amount of water to keep it where it was. Otherwise, if the wind came through his studio, it would blow the whole thing away. Mm -hmm. Then he would start brushing it with paint. Sometimes it was aluminum paint, uh, you know, silver stuff. Sometimes it was varnish and then oils and oil pastels. He would add a little of that. And that's how he would do them. He, he was just he called them, these weren't paintings, he would say. These are actual photographic replications of these images that the ancient peoples put into these stones. Hmm. Wow. And you have one thing in there where you, you talked about how he was witnessed by someone who watched his process where he actually would throw powder into the air and then, strangely enough, the powder would seem to arrange itself into recognizable shapes. Right. That was tall Levesque. Um, it, it's the only account that I know of uh, where there was a witness who thankfully told me about it. Right. Uh, where he witnessed this happen. And that, that's how it got me thinking about his shamanistic quality. Right. Because Tal said it was more like invoking. And sometimes he would take off his shoe and pound it on the floor, you know, <laughs> cursing the Darrows for, you know, you know, messing with them. Uh, but he would also invoke the Tarot, you know, the good cavern people to right. lay his work and, and get the image just right. But, see, he didn't always just... Even though he said these were photographic processes, I know there were times that he kind of used his intuition or his invitations. Right. Or his creativity. Right. Yeah. But you, but you know, the thing is that people, and like you said, people want to scoff at him no, no matter what. And now as an artist, they they still, there are always going to be people that, that, that talk that don't give him the credit that he really deserves as an artist because as an artist myself, I will say that he, he had artistic talent. It, it's just a shame that he never, you know, went in that direction in, in an early age. Or maybe it's not a shame because then we wouldn't have all this other cool stuff to talk about. But he really did have a, a talent. And we haven't even mentioned it yet. Your, your two books are called Rock Fogo. Right, which is what he called the ancient process of creating these art in rock. Right, right. i got to say, they're really good-looking books, a lot of full-color images and uh, excellent uh, written accounts and written material. So, yeah, I really recommend these two books. Well, you know, and a a lot of that is, got to give credit where it's due. Uh, The designer, Laura Santiago, she did a great job on the design of both those books. She She did. She's been the designer on all of the Shavertron Press books since I got started on these. Well, um, let me 
perhaps uh, uh, you should talk just a little bit about Shaver himself for to, to, to benefit some of our listeners who may not have any previous knowledge uh, of Richard Shaver and uh, I mean who he was where he came from and uh, you know what uh, you know the, the the whole thing about the his his rock photos and uh, and everything else and if you could you know if you can do that just maybe you know a couple sentences that would be great couple <laughs> you are kidding right? <laughs> that's why it took me 35 years to write that first book the biography i couldn't do it in 35 uh, years uh, i know i know but, but but you know but maybe just a little bit of an introduction for those okay, who you know okay. who may not be familiar with richard shaver well richard shaver was quite quite a character and he might have gone completely unnoticed if it hadn't been for his editor Ray Palmer um, Shaver seemingly came out of nowhere when he wrote a letter to Ray Palmer with this ancient alphabet called Mantong that he uh, came up with and Palmer became fascinated with this, this ancient uh, supposed mother tongue of earth and that kind of drew him into Shaver's cosmology, so to speak. So Shaver, wanting to become a writer, um, like his brother, Victor, uh, sent him a manuscript. It was called Warning to Future Men or Man. I've seen it both ways, men or man. Mm. But... Um, it supposedly was a 10,000-word manuscript, and uh, Palmer turned it into a 30,000-word manuscript and renamed it I Remember Lemuria. Although, if you noticed, uh, and I think it was volume two of the art book, there's a letter in there that I put in that wasn't in any of the other books where Shaver says it was BS about that part. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. Palmer didn't rewrite anything on that story. He just effed it up in this way and that way and put a stupid title on it, and, and that was his contribution. But anyway, back to the uh, story. Uh, so uh, Palmer called Shaver's stories... Um, the Shaver mystery, because and the mystery was that Shaver claimed that all of these science fiction stories that they were printing were, in fact, actual truth, that Shaver had experienced all of these experiences with these creatures living in caverns inside the earth and that had been there for eons and who have the access to ancient machinery that they use right. to put thoughts in our head and all right. this other stuff. Um, so there was a huge furor over this whole thing, and, and science fiction fandom reared up. Um, actually, it was just a handful, you know, like Forrest J. Ackerman and Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison, like yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Harlan Ellison led the charge. Yeah. Um and so after years, about four years, the Shaver mystery ran from March 1945 until early 1949. Um, it was really over with by 
that 1947 issue that was all a Shaver mystery issue. The handwriting was on the wall. Um, Mr. Ziff of Ziff Davis magazines, who owned Amazing Stories, uh, wanted it out because he was feeling the pressure from hmm. fandom. And uh, and somebody said, well, Shaver's theories uh, contradict Einstein. <laughs> so that really scared him. So he didn't want anything like that going on. Right. Which so, it wasn't necessarily true anyway. I mean, they didn't really contradict Einstein at all. Right. I mean, so, and there was a lot of stuff that just wasn't true that was happening. Uh, um, yeah. Because even in astounding science fiction, there were stories that were touted as true that were fiction, you know. Yeah. And it's the, that was what the hypocrisy of the whole thing was. Science fiction fandom was constantly doing hoaxes and jokes and making mm -hmm. fun of things, and yet when Ray Palmer and Shaver came along and said this and did this, they just decided that was the end and they weren't going to take well, it. Well, you, you know what, Richard, I, I think that one of the things that really bothered the critics was that when Shaver started writing about this and giving commentary about it sometimes in the magazines, people would write in and say, this is true. This happened to me. This happened to my brother. I actually have seen these beings that come from inside the earth. Uh, my grandfather told me, blah, blah, blah. You know, they had, and, and they were dead serious. And this, I think that that is what really bothered the people that like to think of themselves as, since I like science fiction, I'm scientific. You know, I can't abide anything that doesn't totally smack of science. You know, I know. I'm and I have curious. to prove it's a lie. I have to prove it. It's the same thing we see today with the so-called skeptics who are actually debunkers. It's the same mentality, and um, you know they they just could not put up with somebody who because Shaver was building an actual following, people who believed his stories, who claimed that they had had similar similar experiences. You know they they were speaking up, and I I don't think people liked that very much, and I guess that's why. Palmer went on and started the other magazines that he did where those types of voices could be heard. Well, and the other thing that was going on that, that I didn't really think about until I was putting together that first book, uh, War Over Lemuria, was that they both were tapping into uh, a huge mass of people that actually do hear voices. And, it, and it's been going on forever, and it's still going on. But these people have right. been marginalized for years. And here comes Shaver, who's talking, actually talking about, yeah, I hear voices, and here's the whole deal. And Palmer's printing this stuff, and he's backing right. him up. And so these people were like, oh, my God, um, you know, sending all these letters in because they were relieved that there was somebody out there that was talking about this now. It's like the deep, right. dark secret no one wanted to talk about. Nowadays, of course, we have the Hearing Voices Network out there. Right. That's supportive <laughs> of people who hear voices. And it, right. it, it's not like, uh, oh, you're all mentally screwed up. It's, uh, it's a whole new bag now. Well, we even have things like you know multiple personality disorder, where the people with with that disorder will sometimes hear the other voices, and you know it's interesting that you talked about that because 
that kind of leads into the, the whole thing where, you know, Shaver said that everything was real, it was materialistic, and and that, on the other hand, Palmer came around to saying he believes Shaver is telling the truth, but he thinks it's all some sort of mystical, spiritual, astral realm experience that Shaver is mistaking for physical. And so they had this sort of dichotomy, and it, it came out in you know in that book they did together, the, the Secret World, where they both presented their side, kind of. Actually, Palmer kind of took over, but you know. But the thing that I always found very interesting about this was Palmer spent the night at Shaver's home one time, and he heard the voices, and it was come from the room where Shaver was asleep, snoring, and. Palmer said he heard it's in the it, the account is in the secret world. You know, Palmer was totally skeptical. And so he thought maybe that Shaver was pulling a trick, you know, uh doing a hoax and trying to trick him. And he kind of crept into the into the room, into the doorway, and Shaver was sound asleep and there were voices talking in the room. And he could hear what they were saying. They were talking about, you know, being in the caves and and an accident that had happened on the highway and and all this kind of stuff that they had caused, and and he could he, he said he could hear the voices. They were just as real as anybody's voice. But Shaver was sound asleep, so that kind of made a believer out of Palmer. But it kind of pushed him in the in the in the direction of this is some sort of spiritual thing going on here. Rather right. than and uh, at the time that all this was going on, see, there was all kinds of things going on behind the scenes. There were other writers like Rog Phillips and um, people writing fillers like Vincent Gaddis. Right. Um, and I, in 1991, I interviewed Vincent Gaddis up in Redway, California. Cool. And he told me and kind of surprised me that he one time when he went to visit Ray Palmer there at, at Ziff Davis, um, he told Palmer that he thought there could be some astral connection. And I said, you mean to tell me you were the one that <laughs> gave Ray Palmer the idea about the astral thing? And it <laughs> may well have been Vincent Gaddis who got Palmer kicked off on the on the astral plane thing, which he really well, maybe so. Yeah. Well, you know, Palmer had some weird experiences after he started dealing with Shaver. You know, there was a time he, he something happened to him in his basement. I don't remember all the details, but he was going well, downstairs. Uh, supposedly, he was uh, uh, injured. Supposedly yeah, so it, pick, yeah. it picked him yeah. up, and, and some force picked him up and like half floated him, half threw him across the room or something. That's what he so, claimed, yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it was during a massive rainstorm. This was about the time he was getting ready to move over to Amherst, and they were driving back in this horrendous rainstorm back to um, Chicago. And uh, he went into the house and found out his basement was flooding. So he rushed down in there to to you know try and save some things and get them out of the way. And that's when. You know, on the steps, he was picked up, he said, and then thrown down. Well, after that, he almost died again. You know, he was always almost dying because of all these mm-hmm. things that happened to him. Mm-hmm. And that's when he had the experience, another out-of-body experience, where um, he felt that all these people were um, 
kind of analyzing his condition. And his old doctor, the one that operated on him as a child, as a nine-year-old boy, had come back and astrally or somehow spiritually operated on his spine because they said he would never walk again uh, right. after that accident. He had some severe damage. And, and this is what uh, Bill Hamling told me when I saw Hamling in Palm Springs five years ago. So wow. there, there's just so. This is why it took 35 years for me to write this book. There's just so much stuff involved right. in all this. It's not a simple thing, and it, and it seems odd that um, no one had written a biography of Palmer or Shaver until then. Of course, a month after my book came out, then uh, Fred Nettis's book came out on Ray Palmer's <laughs> Man from Mars. Right, which is right. how things work, you know. Um, yeah. But but see yours was yours is more uh, is yours is more e- equitable about both of them right 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 well yeah it was like a a twofer <laughs> right right <laughs> and see that, that that but it should be I mean that because yeah. those two guys kind of they were in a sort of symbiosis for a long time. They were, and even though they had a falling out, uh, well, it was mostly disillusionment on Shaver's part, which is why he was trying to kind of reclaim the Shaver mystery in his own image. Um, And getting back to that whole Shaver mystery mythos thing, uh, they did have a pretty severe falling out, especially when Shaver lost his farm thanks to that whole freedom publishing scandal that, Ray Palmer and Hamling got him into. Um, yeah, well, but basically he he was the front he was the front man mm-hmm. for some guys who were publishing porn, yeah. softcore porn, right? Back in and, those days, yeah, yeah. Yes. And softcore. he was, and, yeah. And so he basically was just the guy that said, "Okay, I'll be your publishing figurehead. Send me a check." <laughs> yeah, he got two hundred bucks a month. Just to have his name as president on the incorporation papers, but as soon as somebody found that out, oh boy, it hit the <laughs> fan, and uh, the politicians were stomping around and saying there was going to be prosecutions and shave. Supposedly, uh, that's when Ray Palmer called him over to the house, and there was a lawyer there, and they said, "Well, looks like you're going to take the fall. You're the president, and..." I've got a publishing business to take care of, and you've got a failing farm with a bunch of rock books on it, so you're going to have to go, I'm afraid. And so yeah, that's, pretty, and that's pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Um, and Shaver was always the low man on the totem pole, it seemed. Whenever something bad happened, he was the one that got hit with it. Right. And, um, so that caused a rift between him and Palmer and... And when he discovered rock books, it was his way of reclaiming the Shaver mystery. And he even asked Palmer to let him have all the rights to the Shaver mystery, you know, after he got booted out of Amazing Stories. I think Palmer wrote about it once in in Amazing. So, yeah, it's kind of a sad story, too. It it is. But you know what? I mean, it, it, it made American culture richer and you know i i wrote a a, a thing and i re, re, reprinted it in expanded form on, on my blog about a year ago about how richard shaver's ideas you know 
I mean, I could go on and on about all the people that have copied him over the years, but his original ideas were really the inspiration. I, I don't care what anybody says for Roddenberry's uh, first pilot for Star Trek, the Menagerie or the Cage. Mm-hmm. You know, where you have this ancient culture, the Talosians, who live underground, and they're survivors of a nuclear or a terrible catastrophic event. They kidnap surface humans. Of course, these will be the people from Earth who come to their planet because they want to repopulate their planet. They have mech machines that create illusions, pain and suffering. All this stuff is right out of the Shaver mystery. Yep, I think you hit something when you found that. Yeah, I mean, people just don't really, I mean, Shaver hasn't, has not gotten the credit for all the things he has done, you know, to contribute. And really, Palmer didn't really get the credit either. But really, if you think about it, Shaver kind of really kicked Palmer upstairs for a while. He really helped him out. So, Uh, yeah. But like you say, uh, even though Palmer got more credit than Shaver, to this day, Palmer has not been inducted into the uh, Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Wow. And uh, that that just seems really strange because everybody else at that point in time, you know, Campbell, even Hamling, has been right. inducted into the Hall of Fame, but not Ray Palmer. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's amazing. That really is. Yeah. <laughs> that's an amazing story. It is, it is. Well, I mean, you know, considering what he contributed, yeah. <laughs> well, I was making a pun there, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, I got it, I got it. <laughs> but, guys, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I told Richard, he, he sent me that, that really cool audio of, of Shaver, which Shaver recorded and sent to him. Shaver has this great voice. I mean, he could have been a broadcaster. With his voice. And, and Richard, why don't you tell us a little bit about the audio that you sent us before we play it? Okay. Um, well, uh, now, to my knowledge, this, this is the only other audio of Shaver's voice that I know of. The other one being, you probably know, is the Long John Nebel show. Mm, right. Uh, where both Palmer and Richard Shaver were interviewed. Um, but that wasn't a very good recording, the ones I've heard. But this one, you can really hear Shaver. Um, you can also hear, for some reason, he liked to, to put other sounds in the background, I noticed. Uh, I have another tape of him where he's got a music box in the background playing Dr. Shivago. So <laughs> I, I have no idea why he was doing these things. But And then he he, he had, you know, well... That's about it. It was a, he had a very cheesy little reel-to-reel tape recorder, kind of like the one you see on Mission Impossible at the opening. And uh, he said he had to hold parts of it together with tape and gum and stuff. <laughs> and, and so it, one of the reasons why I've never really played it before is because it was really... Uh, odd in that the speed would change. He would turn it off and then turn it on again and the speed would be totally different. So I managed to digitally kind of calm things down and even it out Hmm. to where it is now. But you can still kind of hear a change a little bit. But uh, that's that's the story behind that. And you can kind of hear when he you can kind of hear when he he, uh, what what did he do? Did he change reels or did he Turn it over. What did he do 
I, you know, I got the feeling that he wrote down what he was going to say to me before he said it. He like it was almost like some of it he was reading from his own script, and mm. and if he didn't like it, he would turn it off. I could hear him turn it off, and then he would start it again. So right. like, he could have been editing his own tape. <laughs> Very interesting, and the, well, like, uh, and the, you know those those little the reel to reel tape recorders. I mean, every time that you would restart it again, you would get that kind of change in in speed as the tape would come up to speed across the uh, mm-hmm. the head. You know, so that's why you that's why you would hear that. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you gonna, play it, you gonna play it now? Well, yeah, we're about to play it. And, and what oh, was good. interesting is, is all the things he talked about on that tape are a lot of the things that we just talked about in a way. And of course he has some social commentary he makes, which is, t- you know, typically Shaver, once you become familiar with his stuff, I mean, he was, he was, yeah, big social commentator. And then the way it ends, I just find it kind of poignant, you know, the way the, just, it's, but let's go ahead and play it. And then we'll talk about it if we have time before the break. And if not, we'll talk about it after the break. Okay. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's see here. the The tape, uh, the recording, is about uh, uh, ten minutes thirty three seconds, and uh, so we'll have a few minutes when we come back from our break okay. here. So, okay, let's go ahead and uh, listen to uh, uh, the voice of uh, Richard Shaver uh, right here on the outer edge. Testing, testing, Richard Toronto. Eh? Where did you get that name, Toronto? Don't you know it's Indian? Don't answer that. I can't hear you. This is a tape. It's hard for you modern people to visualize a world without TV, isn't it? In those days, people read instead of looking at the idiot box to see what to think next. In those days, publishers were the big thing, not TV producers. Publishers estimated profits at the newsstand in dollars and cents rather than ratings and sponsor reactions. I never met one in the flesh. I just worked for them. I knew as long as my writings produced profits at the newsstands, I was on the payroll. Nothing personal about it. I got up among the top three of the science fiction writers before TV took the wind out of all their sales. Sales, that is, as in newsstand sales. I worked for several publishers, which means I mailed manuscripts to them like you put a letter in a box. They sent back checks in the mail, nothing personal about it. Hard to imagine doing things that way, isn't it? The only way you get a check in the mail nowadays is to be 65 and get soak-seek checks, social security, or convince the welfare that you're sincerely broke. When everybody's broke, we'll call it the welfare state, and we're almost there. You ask about feedback from the readers. Has it been favorable? Well... Palmer has told me about tons and tons of mail from the millions of readers we had then. Nobody ever really read all that mail. I don't think it. One percent of those letters were ever read by anyone. They just came in piled up 
probably got more mail than anybody that ever wrote for TV because they didn't know what to do with it all. That's really why I started the Shaver Mystery Magazine. So I get to read some of my own mail. I never got it. And the Shaver Mystery Magazine was really three or four of us who put it out mainly as a, as a business gamble, sort of. And I did get to answer some letters and get into contact with some, with some of the readers. But it was a very small percentage of the total that reached us. Two or three thousand out of perhaps a million. I eclipsed the what was then the science fiction fan world. The Shaver Mystery Magazine had something like 3,000 paid subscriptions. And the whole science fiction fan club membership was only around 1,200 paid memberships and fan clubs. So Shaver was really about twice what the whole total of all the others were. And if you estimate it by paying fans, so, I don't really grasp the rest of the picture. I was too busy riding back and forth to Shaver fans. And it was just about the peak of that thing when TV started to take over. And in just a few months, subscriptions, newsstand sales, the total volume dropped over 60%. And that drop went on up to 90%. And the number of science fiction magazines on the market dropped from 36 to 6. And then the 6 dropped to 2. Now I understand there's back to 4 or 5 again, but I'm out of touch with it now. And that picture is quite uh, not understandable in today's terms of TV, of producers, and... and uh, the limelight is an entirely different sort of thing now than it was then. Then it was a matter of print and photographs. Now it's personal appearances. The TV took over in that way. All the money dropped out of publishing. And publishers went out of business all over the place. I could still sell. But I couldn't make enough out of it to really call it a living, so I quit altogether. And most of the rest of them did. Even the best, the very best, quit. Took up something else they had to to make a living. So they went into other side things. So did I. I never tried to sell after that. I'm probably the only writer has no unsold manuscripts. I never wrote anything unless it was already sold. Today, I put in my time on rock books, the pre-deluge artifacts of a vanished civilization, the great civilization of the past that we call a golden age. There are plenty of these artifacts and they're tremendously fascinating. And the only reason they aren't known is... Ignorance, pure ignorance, 
so-called educated society of today. They don't even know what their own rocks are, what's on them and what's in them. They never looked. I look. That's what I do as a hobby. I look into stone. And if you try it, you'll learn something about the past. And it's the only way you'll ever learn anything truthful about the past. Because most of what's published and written about it is false. Theorizing and assumptions based on things like the Piltdown Skull, which was a forgery. Look. <laughs> 
was the voice of uh, Richard Shaver. And we're back here on the Outer Edge with our guest, Richard Toronto. So well, that's, you uh, scooped that, everybody, because that, yeah. that's never been played and never been aired. Really? Yep. Wow, that's great. Wow, we appreciate that it. is, yeah. yeah and, that's, and he's uh, got such a distinctive voice. You know, He almost sounds like uh, a television commentator from the time. Mm-hmm. And he's from Pennsylvania, so I assume he's got that Pennsylvania accent. I don't know. I don't know. Very, very distinctive. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting, all the things he, he packed into that one message to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and, and like you said, I mean, the uh, that uh, that music in the background as he talked. Uh, it, sounds like <laughs> a, it sounds like a television, doesn't it? Almost, yeah. Yeah. And you notice that when he talked about how he ended up not really writing anymore for Amazing Stories. There was no mention of the the hoopla with science fiction fandom or any of that. It was, that was part of him kind of changing, rewriting what had happened over the years. Right. Uh, and like I mentioned to you over over the break behind the, the audio, um, he, he did it in a big way in an interview that he did with Gene Steinberg. Um, and that is a really significant, to me, interview with Shaver because it was done in the early 70s, about the same time that that audio tape to me was done. Hmm. And I ran that interview in issue 20. It, it should have made a big wave and, you know, for Shaver mystery buffs everywhere, but it didn't even cause a ripple um, because Shaver in it had completely rewritten all the significant events of the Shaver mystery. The, the, the welding gun that put him in touch with the underworld, that was all gone. It had been hmm. replaced by cloud formations and uh, where the people from the underworld were creating these images in clouds. And that's how he got in mental telepathy touch with all these people. It wasn't the welding gun at all. Now, I showed in, in that first book that I did that he was in an auto plant and he was a welder in the auto plant. So... The physical evidence is there for that story to be true, but for some reason, in that interview with Gene Steinberg, he completely rewrote it, wrote out all those parts. He wrote out the part where the cavern girl, Nydia, came, the blind cavern girl, came to him in the jail cell and, you know, hypnotized the guard and then took him to the underworld. You remember that scene? I think it was right. Witch in the Night. Uh, so that was all gone. And the way he got to the underworld in 1972 was in a motorboat hmm. uh, on, on um, Delaware Bay in, in Delaware. Um, and they went along the coast for quite a ways, he said. And then they went inside. It was almost like one of those old Republic serials, you know, when the the rock opens up like a trap door and the boat goes into the side of the mm-hmm. cliff. Yeah. You know, it was just like that. Huh. And that's how he got to the other world. And then he said there was a huge battle 
and everybody was killed that he was with, and somehow he survived, and he got back in the boat and went back uh, to the fishing village where he was working as a fisherman and told him, hmm. well, I went off and got drunk. He said he didn't even want to tell him what happened. Hmm. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> I, I'm kind of mystified, other, but... I know he was rewriting it, you know, he was rewriting right. it with the rock books, telling the story of the Shaver mystery and confirming uh, the parts of the ancient elder race in the rock books. He was doing that, but why he felt he had to rewrite the whole part about how he got into the caverns and all that, I'm not sure. Hmm. Right. Well, it almost sounds like he was trying to uh, uh, clean up his image that it, that he felt like he had been smeared or, or or made to look foolish or something, so he was attempting to kind of whitewash what had gone on Could in the be. past. Could be. Because he was like everybody's whipping boy for years. So, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. getting back to that mythos again, that mythos hung in there. Everything he said had no effect on right. anybody, which is really odd. Well, you know, you have to wonder if that's because, not just because people have already made up their mind, but because they really just didn't care anymore to hear what he had to say. Yeah, that's true. Except for maybe the, the few di the few diehard people reading Shavertron. They care, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was fading fast. I mean, that's why I started Shavertron was because, you know, it was four years after he died. I was thinking, God, what's going to happen? Then, then Palmer died, so there was really nothing left. Right. So that's when I started Shavertron, and then that's when I started. <laughs> I was the focus of everybody's hate for a while. I mean, I got some really bad reviews. I was called anal retentive. I was called anal retentive paranoiac. You name wow. it, everything, um, and and was like, how dare he even do this? Well, well think, then, think about this, Richard. Yeah. Anybody who is fanatical about, you know, ridiculing uh, other types of thinking, ways of looking at things, um, uh, uh, fringe theories like you know the Shaver mystery or anything else, who they just they just can't stand that it even exists and they have to criticize it. <laughs> Doesn't that fit the definition of anal retentive? Well, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> <I mean>, it, <laughs> well, it was it, it was fun, you know. It was fun doing it because, in a way, I I like kind of goading everybody at the same time, you know. Sure. Oh, yeah, well, take this then. And and then when when John Keel wrote me a letter and said, "Well, keep up the bad work." <laughs> you know, I, I convinced him to do the interview in Shavertron, which I didn't think he would do, but he did. Um, it, it was a whole interesting thing. But then we were also talking about publishing and uh, how difficult it is when you're in a marginal area, you know, a marginal market to, to just survive, and how Keel was talking about how he told me that he got $200 in royalties for the Mothman Prophecies, Man. which is, I mean, that was one of my favorite books that he did. Uh, and, and I was just blown away by this book, and he got $200. He got zero for uh, Operation Trojan Horse, he said. Um, 
So he said he made really no money off of those books. And then Trevor James Constable said, he wrote in and said, yeah, Keel is right. I made zero on all my UFO books, even though I spent a ton of money. And and I can tell you right now, I spent a ton of money over the years researching that first book I did, and I'm never going to make that money back. Um, Right. It's... It's exasperating. Um, oh, and and James Mosley, you know, everybody knows James Mosley in Flight mm-hmm. Club. He just died a year ago or so. Mm-hmm. He yeah. told me, you're never going to find a publisher for that book. <laughs> you know, I told him I was <laughs> writing that book. No, you're never going to find a publisher. My book, he said, uh, shockingly close to the truth. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. His autobiography, which I thought was a really good book. It was a really entertaining book, and, and he had everybody in there from the early contactee days um, with all of his experiences with him, and it was a good book. He he was in the red. His publisher was in the red for that book. So nobody's really been able to make any money off of the Shaver Mystery or Flying Saucers except Ray Palmer. Right. Ray Palmer was the only guy who figured it out, but it could just be because he was there at the right time and you know the timing was right and he just well, he was he was a real showman he was kind of like a carnival barker you know he was, that, yeah. that was part <laughs> of his personality but he was also very shrewd and he knew trends yeah um, so he, he was really intelligent guy and and he was a good publisher a good editor um handling couldn't say enough good things about him hmm. well you know it's interesting that that in the the audio that we played that Shaver talked about how the television affected magazine sales. And you know what? I believe that. I believe that once that magical little box turned on everybody's house, even a small and black and white, that people didn't want to sit down and read a magazine in the evening. They wanted to turn on that box, you know, and watch uh, Milton Berle and Howdy Doody. Oh, yeah, everybody worried about that that used to write for the pulps. Uh, Robert Block said that uh, teenagers are losing the ability to read, and that was back in the 60s. Now you can imagine with uh, texting and things like that, uh, it's it's even less than haiku. The dumbing down has accelerated exponentially. (laughs) It's just what Shaver said it would do. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, And... You know, uh, if you look at it, you know, we were talking during the audio, like you said, I mean, uh, it just seems like the destruction of book publishing has just been continuing, continuing, continuing as a trend um, in terms of actual paper books. Um, so it, it's something that it, you even have this thing where sometime a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, Google basically said, well, we're just going to print everybody's books and, and make them all available for free. Uh, and I'm a writer, and I'm saying, excuse me, you're going to do what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think so, you know, yeah. because they think, oh, gee, everybody's just writing it because they want to. Nobody needs to make any money. Uh, what? You know, I, I know. It just seems like the people's idea of the value of the written word, because there's so much crap written you know, on the Internet. Everybody's a blogger or whatever. And you know, and anybody has Google as an expert and a researcher now. They don't have a library of thousands of books. They're they're just a, uh, but they got Google and and Bing. So you know, it, it seems like the dumbing down just continues apace. Well, in the '80s, Keel was lamenting the fact that publishers were being consolidated and bought out, and they were becoming fewer and fewer. 
and that uh, uh, you had to sell at least 3,000 books to, to break even, and books weren't selling like that at all, and publishers were less and less willing to take on new authors and new writers. But then we had the Internet, and the Internet and Amazon and, and uh, print-on-demand changed it again. Yeah. And so kind of like photography was, you know, in, in the 80s, it happened when digital came in. Um, film went out. Mm-hmm. And everybody started becoming photographers. Now there's a f- camera in every cell phone. Right. And everyone, everyone's a photographer who has a cell phone. And so photography has kind of become like writing almost. You know, everybody's an author now. Everybody's a photographer now. Right, exactly. And you know, I, used to, I used to run around with a Canon AE-1 everywhere I went. I wasn't mm-hmm. top of the line, but I knew how to use oh, it. Yeah. You know, and as a graphic designer and an artist and, you know, and, and, and professional, you know, you, you need to know something about composition. You need to know right. something about lighting. All these, you know, uh, textures, uh, motion, all these things. And now it's just, oh, look, I took a picture. I'm a photographer. It's the same right. kind of thing that like you said with the writing. It's the same thing. You know, Richard, I don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, was a, I actually went through that transition when they first came out with Photoshop, I used the first Photoshop. In fact, I think we had it in beta in the mm. place where I worked. Um, and I was already using uh, computer graphics there on uh, what's called an IGDS or Intergraph platform, which was run off of a VAX, believe it or not. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so we had uh, Photoshop come in here, and I thought, oh, my God, this is going to replace photography. Yep. Eventually. It sure did. I mean, you, you can take the worst photograph imaginable and fix it now. Oh, yeah. I do it all the time. I do it for people. <laughs> yep. I, I, some, of my, some of my customers, they, they just have me do yeah. Photoshop work for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, but it's great for restoring photographs. I mean, I yes, really love that. Um, and I've used it many times, like like for the, the shaver photographs that were in pretty rough shape. That, that really helped. Well, but, you know, uh, I, I love it. I love Photoshop because it, I think it can be used as an, art, an artist tool it can be used as an art form as long as you actually are a trained or a an artist. Okay, what what gets me is when somebody will take a photograph and they'll run a filter on it <laughs> and say, "Look, I painted this." No, you didn't. You ran a filter that some software engineer wrote somewhere, and you didn't do anything. But you scanned in a picture and you did a speckle and a twirl on it, and now you're calling yourself an artist. You know, so you know it's just again it's that dumbing down. Yep, and and then when HD uh, came in, HDR uh, photos, everything started, all the colors started really popping, didn't it? I mean, it started looking like lollipop colors everywhere, and everybody was getting <laughs> yeah. these suits. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, things have definitely changed since the 80s, haven't they? Well, you know, Shaver's use of color was, was really interesting. I always thought that his, his color stuff was just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yep, yes, it was. Um, and it, and his, his, just his, the way he depicted figures and things uh, was extremely interesting. And, and his paintings were a lot different than his drawings. Right. Because the paintings were a whole different bag. They weren't supposed to be paintings. If you see his illustration work, it's much more realistic, much more flowing, whereas right. the rock book paintings are a totally different bag. Right. 
exactly. And his work actually, his drawings and his paintings remind me of different artists. I mean, they remind me sometimes of Picasso, sometimes of uh, Paul Clay or somebody like that. I mean, it, it's just, his stuff is just amazing, but it's been neglected for far too long, I think. Until now, until you did your, what I would say are the definitive books of his of his uh, collections of his work. And you know, I was surprised at how many of his works, once I got it all together, and a lot of this was thanks to Brian Emmerich, who's probably got the largest body of Shaver's work now um, back in New York. But I was surprised at how many of his paintings I had photos of because a lot of the paintings are gone now. They were destroyed or lost. I've known people who've told me, oh, yeah, I I loaned one out to a friend, but I never got it back. I wonder what happened to it. Or, Uh, oh, it faded on me so bad I just threw it away. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, like that. So um, a lot of his work, and I think his wife, you know, after he died, she was so upset, she just started burning and throwing away a lot until she realized she could unload it for a little money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she really loved him, didn't she? Oh, God, she loved him, yeah. She was crazy about him. Mm. Well, now, did 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 we ever go into just exactly um, what the rock books were, uh, what they supposedly were, what, what uh, Shaver's uh, uh, theory uh, about uh, uh, about the rock books, we could. what he based his paintings from. We could do that. He... Yeah, yeah, just 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 briefly, you know, just so you know, we have a good uh, you know idea for our audience, you know, what we're well, talking he, about. He <laughs> um, basically he didn't just paint; he wrote about what he painted because he was depicting scenes of of a bygone era. He used to like to say, "This painting." that you see right here is probably the only painting that shows you so far back in time that you can't imagine. Um, he would get these uh, time capsules. Each, each of these rock books was like a time capsule. And he would describe it. He tried to describe it like, just imagine a picture, a portrait of JFK. He always liked to use JFK because that was (laughs) what was going on at the time, and he liked JFK. Um, But a portrait of JFK as a baby, growing up, you know, during the war, sitting in his rocking chair, all in in like a three-dimensional holograph uh, portrait uh, that's what a rock book is. It's got all this stuff in it that that just, you know, I, I'm cutting it, but all I'm going to get is a certain part of that because I don't have the machinery to get the whole story out, the whole image. So he would paint these from a from a certain plane of the rock, and he always lamented having to cut these because it's like he said it's like eviscerating the uh, Mona Lisa and you're cutting through her intestines. But he would he he got the entire history of uh, our ancestors, who he said were um, like these amphibious creatures. He called mares, M-E-R-S, and they had fins. They looked like humans. They had arms and legs, but they they kind of looked a lot like the creature from the Black Lagoon, to tell you the mm-hmm. truth, um, a lot like that. 
Um, and so he would study these rocks really hard, and, and he would write these really detailed histories about these people and how they lived in the oceans, how they bore their children, uh, how they fought their wars. But there were also the Amazons he wrote about because the Amazons left their own rock books. He wrote about these people called the Littles, which were tiny little, you know, like uh, spriggans, these little elf-like creatures. And he wrote about the giants. So there were these different races that he talked about uh, that he got their histories out of these rocks. And that's what he was doing by doing the paintings. The paintings were one way that he could show people what was really going on because nobody could really see what he saw in those rocks. Right. Hmm. Well, you know what his stuff always reminded me of, too? I mean, you've heard the... I'm sure you guys have heard how people have, have theorized, you know, if an archaeologist in a thousand years were to found, find a flesh toilet, you know, they might think that it was the... Since every house had one, that it was the altar. You know, it was the family <laughs> place of worship. You know, which for some people maybe it is. But, you know, it, you have to wonder, with some of the things that, that he did find or, or think that he saw, I mean, he had his interpretation, but that doesn't mean he didn't find something strange. Oh, he had descriptions of clothing, of costumes, uh, yeah. I mean, everything, down to the huge laces. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the things I find fascinating about uh, uh, some of the uh, paintings that, that Shaver did based on uh, what he was seeing from the rock art is a lot of these, um, some of the ones that he has that shows just like multiple faces, just, you know, almost like, you know, intertwined, you know, faces and faces and faces and faces. And, you know, I have seen... Um, photographs or supposedly supernaturally produced um photographs almost that that show some that show very similar things you know that same kind of motif faces within faces you know like a face behind a face or on top of a face uh, very uh, 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 very similar to what shaver was doing but from a completely uh, uh, different source if you've ever watched people like a crowd uh, moving around in the dark with a strobe light flashing. Mm -hmm. that, that's how he described what it's like in these rock books. Um, it's just all this movement going on. It, he says it's like a strobe. You see all the different, you know, one second, one split second you see the foot over here, and then the next split second it's over there. And that's how he described it. Hmm. It'd be almost like if somebody found uh, an old movie reel, but didn't have a projector and had no idea, you know, exactly. how to how to get it, and they would cut a frame out and then make a painting based on what they saw in that frame. Guys, I got to tell you, I mean, I know that he used a lot of imagination, a lot of creativity, that he was tapping into some things, like you talked about, Richard, with the shamanism and and the subconscious and everything. But there, there really are some anomalous imagery-type things in some of these rock slices. I, there are. I'm, there are. You can't, you can't deny that there's something weird going on here. It's almost like what Tim was saying. that there, Okay, let's say you could somehow contain an entire uh, uh, drama in 
in some sort of crystal holography, but you lost the way to play it back. You know, would it be possible that the images are there in a way that can be seen? You know, if you were to cut it in just the right way and, say, shine light through it? I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, just it, it doesn't have to be the same kind of technology that we have right. when it comes to crystal technology. Well, so, you know, when I was putting that book together, I did the same thing you did when you were doing your book, you know, starting to really blow those things up. And, and all of a sudden, I would start seeing these images that were yes. dead like certain animals. You know, I said, hey, that's a Jack Russell Terrier. It looks exactly hmm. like a Jack Russell Terrier. Yeah. You know, and then I'd turn it around and it was gone, and then I'd try and get it back, and sometimes right. I could get it back, and it wasn't. You know, it, it, it's spooky. Well, it is because, you know, in, in uh, the book, of course, my book's just black and white. and But that's because the images I have are black and white. I didn't have any color images. But when I blew those things up, and I mean, I found figures fighting, like battle scenes. I mean, mm -hmm. like in Amazon, a big muscular woman fighting some kind of people and monsters and stuff. I found uh, reptilian humanoids, fish people. It's all actually in these little images. And, you know, it's like I said, okay, we all know what pareidolia is. But, you know, you're not going to find that many images with pareidolia. You know, you reach a point where, you know, there's an old saying, you know, twice twice is, you know, what is it, three times is a coincidence, but or is it twice as a coincidence, three times is no accident, or, or something like that. Like three but, times is a conspiracy, I think is what yeah, it goes. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, I mean, <laughs> those, those images are, are there. They exist. I've still got the images. I've still got the raw the data files, everything. The images are there. They're in that data. It's just a matter of, like you said, zooming in on it and and finding them. And they look like they're layered. They look like you've cut across some sort of data stream. Does that make make sense? Yeah, Almost well, like and, and David pieces. wasn't the only one, you know. Like I, I said in my introduction to Volume One, that uh, you know there there are other people that were seeing these things too and writing about things and, and right. uh, said, "Hey, you know, this is no accident. There's something going on here. There seems like an intelligent process going on here." Right. Um, and and W. G. Bliss, who who used to work with Shaver and who actually contributed some of the images the rock images for the secret world, um, he postulates that it's not just in rock books that these images are, are somehow impregnated in almost everything. Uh, yeah. That it's like uh, it's, it's an encoding coming from somewhere and it's going through every physical bit of matter and impressing itself in there. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah. Think about it. I mean, the Earth is a giant electromagnet with a powerful electromagnetic field that is always turned on. I mean, it comes and goes in strength, and you know you have like a, a magnetic pole reversal, and we're getting close to that now, which means our magnetic field is really, really weak right now, really weak. It's like it at at like two percent of what it has been in the past. So when it flips, it's back to full strength. You know, when it That's flips right. over, we're, we're due for a pole reversal. Exactly. So when the when the magnetic field flips and the Earth's magnetic field is like ramped way up, who knows what's possible? Yeah. Who knows what type of uh, even the Earth itself may just as a matter of course totally 
having nothing to do with technology could be laying down images based on some sort of, you know, who knows, tachyons or, or photons. Or, or, you know, we have no way of knowing what the conditions are like in terms of physics when that magnetic field is ramped way up. You know, that could also explain things like people move, uh, moving gigantic stones to high spots in the Andes Mountains to build things, you know, because we can't do that now, but they sure did it, you know, thousands of years ago. So uh, it, it's just one of those things where you have to wonder. Obviously, there's something going on. There's something to this stuff. And, of course, the critics laugh and scoff. But you know what? Uh, you know, I, I think of them as like uh, the monkeys in the monkey house at the zoo. You know, the monkeys <laughs> fling poo. You know, they they think they're superior and they fling poo, and that's that's kind of how I look at that because they they don't dare think outside of their little their little uh, sphere of of, of uh, self congratulatory whatever it is they 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 dwell in the poo I guess. <laughs> well, it's like Avery used to say, why bother to really study it or think about it when you've already got an opinion about it? You know, right? Yeah. 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 No. <laughs> you know, uh, Tim Beckley always uh, uh, would tell me how when he was a kid, um, Shaver would send him boxes of these rocks that you know, with, you know, with handwritten notes, you know, saying you know what what to look for, and it would honk Beckley's mom off to know uh, because they'd get she would you know get these boxes full of dirt and rocks and she'd get you know so mad she'd just like throw them out in the backyard <laughs> he must have been a member of the the subscription the rock club the rock club. yeah the, the home study course yeah she was rock club, the home study course that's the one i joined up for uh-huh uh, whatever happened to all your rocks mine well he he <laughs> I sent him rocks. <laughs> I, I one day I was standing out in front of a, a garage while my car was getting fixed, and I was, God, well, this rock book stuff she was telling me about. So I I looked down, I saw this little pebble, and I picked it up, and so I stuck it in an envelope, and I mailed it to Shaver. Yep, that's a rock book, all right. So well, geez, <laughs> it's not that hard. No, it's not. <laughs> I I started uh, getting some and photographing them, and, uh, you know, that's how it started. Wow. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and, and, of course, you corresponded with him for quite a while, didn't you? Yeah, at, from 1972 till he died. Wow. And that was about four, a little over four years. Well, yeah. see, I mean... It was a rocky correspondence sometimes. You know, I kept wanting to hear more, but all he wanted to do was focus on the rock books. You know, come on, you can do it. Get out there. Get those rock books going. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I, I still had my one postcard because he mailed it back to me. But he, yeah. And he colored in some things and said, well, you're still missing all this stuff. Come on. You know, got to get with it. <laughs> what, you know what? It's all, it also could have been Richard is uh, uh, all you young guys. Stay hooked. I need this. I need this subscription money that you guys are sending me. Yeah, yeah. So now is uh, I. I know that uh, his uh, some of his surviving art has been on display. Um, is there any place that uh, anyone can can see it now? Afraid not. Although uh, I just heard from Brian Tucker today, he's been the the one guy who's really pursued doing 
uh, exhibits with Shaver's work. And he told me today that he's trying to get a sabbatical from his teaching so that he can put together his magnum opus, his big show uh, on Shaver, and hopefully get a um, a book or a, you know a catalog done on the show. So there's one coming up. I did see his show. It was right after I interviewed Bill Hamling in Palm Springs. I drove back through Pasadena. It just happened that um, that uh, the show uh, called uh, Mantong and Protong, which was mm-hmm. a great show. Mm-hmm. It was Zukowski, who was also a visionary artist. Right, I wanted to ask about him. Yeah, he, it, the, the similarities between him and Shaver were pretty stunning, yes. uh, that they both had these mother languages, but one was called Protong and the other was called Mantong. I mean, it was huh. really... Really interesting, right? Uh, and, and their imagery is similar too. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, yeah, very mystical. It, mystical, yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got something to reveal to you, type deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I've got a, a burning message that I have to get across to you. Yes, kind of deal. Uh, they were both driven, and it was great of Brian to get that show together. It was, it was a great exhibit. That's really cool. Well, guys, hey, we're we are almost out of time. Um, Richard, why don't you tell us uh, where uh, we can find your books, uh, website, things like that? Okay. Uh, well, it's pretty easy. Uh, all the books are available on on Amazon. So mm-hmm. all you got to do is type in my name, and all those books will turn up. Uh, there's Shaverology. That's the sequel to uh, War Over Lemuria. And then there's the art books, and then there's the first two volumes of the Shavertron collection that are all reprints of the very rare Shavertron. Right. And uh, and Shavertron is still going. It's online now, so Shavertron.com. Wow, that's cool. It's a great site. You know, I used to be over there quite a bit myself, remember, about 10, 12 years ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's a great site, Shavertron.com. And I, I plan to get those books, by the way, the Shavertron collections, one of these days. Well, as soon as they're all done, they'll, they'll all be out there. And, cool. and I'm hoping to have those done by the end of the year so that I can fully retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, man, we thank really, you very much. Yeah. yeah, We appreciate it, man. Big time. Uh, it's been great to, to be able to talk like this. Yeah, we have a real conversational sort of deal going here, and it's it's really cool that we had you on right after we were both on uh, Ancient Aliens talking about mysterious or forbidden caves. That's good, yes. Yeah. All right, well, hope we can get together someday again soon. All right. Yes, yes, we definitely want, yeah, we definitely want to have you back on again uh, real soon, Richard. So. Okay. All right. Well, everyone out there who uh, is listening, you have been listening to Richard Toronto on The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mott. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. And be sure to tune in this uh, the same time next week for more weird and interesting stuff. So from all of us, good night and have a great week till we meet again. Don't let the Dero bite. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, sleep tight. <laughs> All right. If you want to get a thrill, if you want to see the sights, jump right in. I got an unidentified.
identified flying object, yeah, let's go for a spin, we're going UFO, we're trying saucer flying, we glide across the skies, nobody will believe their eyes, just when they think they've seen us, we zoom away to Venus, one moment we're in Mexico, like that we're Just when they think they've seen us, we zoom away to be 